My name is William Chernoff, and today on the Rhythm Changes podcast, I spoke to Francis Henson. My overwhelming impression of Francis after knowing him as a friend and watching the release of his album Boy Pacific in January 2021 is that he's both thoughtful and grateful. He's thoughtful about what his audience wants from him as an independent artist, and he's grateful for his family, his professional team, and his station in life in general. I really enjoyed this conversation. Please enjoy. So, Francis, I thought a neat place to start would be that when you started promoting your album, Boy Pacific, you wrote that you had discovered, quote, how to be earnest but also slick. What, what more can you share about this phrase? Ha, that's a great question to start this off with. <laughs> Heavy questions in the morning. All right, so the uh, the story begins with um, Boy Pacific. All the songs I wrote for Boy Pacific were in 2017. No, sorry, not all. I started writing for Boy Pacific in 2017. And I was 20, 20 21 at the time. And much like first tattoos, everyone's first couple songs are very, very meaningful or as meaningful as you can want them to be they're very very earnest because you think this is me i gotta put my heart on my sleeve this is it this means a lot so all uh, all the songs i wrote in that time of my life were very very earnest and very very meaningful as much as they can be meaningful as a 20 21 year old and so now that um, it's been three years cooking, and I'm almost 24 now, and my writing has changed, my perspective of, of, of writing, my perspective of music, and my perspective of how I think music is perceived by different kinds of people has changed. It's kind of coming out of a three-year slow cook, out of that earnest meaningful phase and into this this new phase whatever it is and so that's one big realization that i had coming out of this uh this phase is that there's got to be a way to be earnest but also slick and slightly removed from the art and I'll, i'll talk about this a little bit more um i realized that all my favorite artists all the best artists haven't element of being slightly removed from their art and by that I mean they care but they don't really care maybe there's there's an element of irony in that maybe there's an element of I'm gonna do this just because I think people are gonna like it it's a really common thing people I'm a really big fan of are like John Mayer and, and Dave Chappelle and they say the same thing about music and comedy they always say that the things that feel like nothing coming out of your brain tend to be the things that people like the most. And I thought, man, that's so true. And I, I've learned that to be the case in some of my previous songs. For example, uh, this year or last year, 2020, I released an album called With a Little Bit of Grace in the Summer. And there's a, a song on that album called Stuck Down in Paris with You, which took me, I don't know, 15 minutes to write because it started off as a joke. Um, <laughs> but then it, it turned out to be the highest streaming song um, to date. 
And and I don't mean that in in you know like a like a bad way or that I'm I'm making fun of the making fun of that at all. It's just I I found that to be really funny. As, as a creator, the things that that uh, feel the least exciting to create oftentimes could be the, the the thing that people like the most. So so that's that's kind of where I'm going with this whole disconnected thing. I I can't find a, a better word than disconnected. I'm still looking for it, but um, there, there's got to be a way to be earnest, but but disconnected in that sense. I guess slick. I was looking, guess using the word slick, but... So is it a spectrum? Do you go on a spectrum from being more earnest to more slick, and do we all fall at some point in the middle of it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, actually, yeah. It totally is a spectrum. In that sense, when I was 20 and writing all these songs, I was definitely hard on the, on the earnest side of this spectrum. And now I guess I'm trying to move more towards the slick disconnected side whether i make it all the way to the other side or or never make it or just find a happy medium maybe i'll find that happy medium when i'm 50 i don't know but we'll see all i know is that i'm moving away from this this hard (laughs) hard one side earnest side of writing and moving away from that trying to be more slick i love that you already mentioned the year 2017 and evolving your writing because I heard that in 2017, you found the inspiration to focus more on writing lyrics while playing an instrumental jazz gig. Tell me about that experience. That's right. <laughs> so 2017, let's see where I was at the time. I was in my second year of university music school and getting into a lot of uh, instrumental gigs, jazz gigs. And uh, there's a lot to be learned there first of all. But um, after the first couple of years of, of playing these sort of gigs, um, one thing hit me was that... <laughs> first, it didn't align with my sensibilities as a musician. Some values that I really held dear to my own heart for music were accessibility, relatability... I realized I wanted to make music that that uh, wasn't just impressive for musicians. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't uh, music theory for music theory's sake. It wasn't. I'm, try, I'm trying to find another way to describe that, but you know what I mean. Um, unless that's your thing, unless that's the purpose of of the music of the composition, in which case that totally makes sense. Um, but in my case, for my sensibilities, I realized then that it was way more important for me to write music that people got, that really hit you in the gut, more than hit you in, in the head, um, theoretically. Like an example is, at the end of a gig, I'd so much rather say, I'd so much rather someone come up to me and say, hey man, I've had a really tough week and that song you played, it really made me feel a lot better and kind of solved things in my in my in my heart made me feel a lot better thank you i'd so much rather get that than hey man that second song you played was that lydian flat set was that a what would you lydian with a flat seven maybe but you also went it's and it's like yeah cool i could i could talk about that with you but like 
it, as a as a human being, I don't know, it makes my heart a lot more fulfilled when I get the first the first response. I'm wondering what else you tell people who aren't musicians about your university jazz education. I tell them that it was the most important four years of my life. <laughs> I tell them that I wouldn't have met any of the people that I know now professionally, if not for those four years. I wouldn't know half the things I know about the inner workings of music, if not for it. I wouldn't know how to play my guitar the the way I, I think I know how to play it now. <laughs> um, and uh, I wouldn't have the same outlook on music without it. When you start writing a song, how much of the final arrangement can you already hear in your mind? It depends on the song. Usually if it's if it's a song that that comes ready made, it's usually all you get you get the whole song in in the first first click of trying to write the song. Um when it's a song that's more conceptual or needs a little bit more more finessing, then you usually need to take it bit by bit. A song like Stuck Down in Paris with You, for example, that that song I, I you could I could I remember hearing the song all the way through for the in the first like seven minutes of trying to put it together um, because it's so it, it was ready made. So in Boy Pacific, for example, track two and one, that's Hold Me Again and Look. I don't know why I said those in backwards order. One and two, <laughs> um, you know, Look ha- is uh, an even amount of bars. Yeah, it's eight, eight for the verse. Drums come in eight for the pre-chorus, eight for the chorus, and then you got you got verse pre-chorus. Sorry, verse pre-chorus chorus, verse pre-chorus chorus, bridge double chorus out done. Hold me again. Hold me again is interesting because it uh, doesn't follow that same uh, conventional pop uh, form. But I was thinking more on the lines of the Jack Antonoff pop school of thought. You know, you have, you have your verse, you have your pre-chorus, chorus, and then it jumps into a guitar solo right after that, which is exactly what, what Hold Me Again does. It also seems to be the more pop pragmatic choice because it kind of, <laughs> it kind of, uh, assures me a certain amount of, uh, traction in its release. That being said, um, it's not that I didn't enjoy writing songs on Boy Pacific like like uh, New Kid or Those Days or Marigold. They're just, I think, a little bit, because of the nature of their, their how they were framed, they're not as, um, I feel like they're, they're asking a little bit more of, of the listener. So because of that, I think... Um, with songs like those, all those folk folkish songs, I say that I'm doing uh, air quotations. All those folkish songs, I feel like it's asking a little bit more of the listener because because there's not as strong of a hook. The forms are maybe a little bit longer, yeah, and, and therefore I, I I don't think people would would listen to it as easily as they would to say look track number one. 
what are the differences between making a record by yourself and doing it with many collaborators? Delegating and having a good team. Um, you and I have talked before and you told me about the difference between a DIY musician and an independent musician. And we talked a little bit about that. And that was really enlightening for me because we, we had mentioned that, that a DIY musician, uh, as the name suggests, you do everything by yourself. And so that was definitely my experience writing with a little bit of grace, that album in 2020, which was a self-produced, self-recorded, self-mixed, self-quote-unquote, air quotations, mastered album. And I did all the promo and by myself, and it was all self-funded as well. So moving from that to working with lots of people, a great team, all professionals in what they do for Boy Pacific, that was moving from DIY to independent. And that's what was very enlightening for me in our talk was that uh, independent musician means that you have a team of people around you, professionals around you, who take care of all the things that you're not so good at or that you don't fancy doing, which in my case was obviously I didn't play all the instruments, so you hired a professional band. These are real session players. Um, I wanted a really like professional mix, so you hired uh, an engineer to get it mixed, you hire to get it mastered, you hire a real graphic designer to put together the branding, all of that. So moving from DIY to independent with a little bit of grace to uh, Boy Pacific. Was your question, which is easier or which do I prefer? Both of those are good. I'm just wondering about the differences because you've exposed yourself pretty thoroughly to both of those where a lot of artists maybe only do one or the other. Yes. Yeah. So I, I've actually, looking back now, pretty lucky that I experienced both of those in such close times uh, between each other. They were they were both good. I enjoyed them both equally, uh, and there were things to learn from both. The DIY thing, you definitely have to be really on on your game a lot more, and it's a lot more self driven, I think, because you have no one holding you accountable for dates or deadlines or anything like that. Um, at the same time, you have a lot more control, and that comes with its its pros and and its cons. The bad thing about doing something DIY is that you have to know, to do it really well, you have to know so much about so many things. And uh, to really get, to really get a good result, obviously my two years of knowing how to mix is nothing compared to someone who's been mixing for 30 years. So that's when, that's that's when the uh, the independent thing comes into play, is that you, you now have a, a team of, these are pr real professionals. And you can delegate tasks, let them do what they do best as they know more than you and let their work and their expertise come through. Maybe like in the future, it would be obviously would be fantastic to write with other people and and uh, have writing collaborations. But um, 
for the most part, for songs that um, I release under my own name and that I sing, I I can't ever give up the uh, spending three hours in a room, piano on my left, guitar on my right, and just bang, 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 song, 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 and then it's just so it's it's so liberating and it's so beautiful and that's something i don't think i I would ever give up yeah and the person who mixed the album is our mutual friend anthony centerini and i'm in his studio 12th street sound quite often one of my memories of that studio from this summer is this epic board of things for the production of boy pacific that got progressively more and more crossed out as you completed more of the work on the album. So I'm wondering what it felt like when you finished that board. First of all, we love you, Anthony. Anthony is a great dude. <laughs> and his studio is great. We felt so relieved. I remember the first day at the studio, we were getting set up, and Anthony said, uh, there's, there's a whiteboard over there. You can erase what's on it, and we're going to start putting up this graph. I said, okay, sick. So I wrote down all the track listing. Look, Hold Me Again, Marigold, Roller Nights, etc. And then he started writing down the instruments for each. And the boxes kept getting smaller and smaller because I would run out of space. As more instruments got added, there'd be like drums, electric drums, bass, upright bass, piano, organ, synth, other synth, electric guitar, acoustic guitar, slide guitar, baritone guitar. And it's like, um, there was a lot of stuff. So when we were finished, we both looked, Anthony both, Anthony and I both looked at each other and we were just so relieved. It was like, wow, those are all the instruments on this album. It seems like a lot. Um, but, uh, that was, that was the record. Tell me about your time tracking the live horn arrangements. That was fun. (laughs) That was fun. I hired my my friend in town, also Capilano University graduate, arranger, composer, piano player, great musician. His name is Dean Thiessen. I hired him to arrange three-part horns for three songs on Boy Pacific. And we had some other f- friends come in. We had uh, Thomas Holden on trumpet slash flugelhorn. It was Evan Taylor on saxophone and Louise Melgar on trombone. And yeah, it was the the three horn players in, in the live room. It was me, Dean, and Anthony in the control room. And that was the first time any of us had ever really heard the the horns in person with the tracks. Yeah, what 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 else to say about that day? It was great. One of the things Dean said was... Um, um, when when they would try a take and we'd uh, fix some stuff, like we'd have some suggestions, swell here, things that, uh, just to add to the ink, to the parts, Dean was saying, this is what's so, so fundamentally good about music is that everyone just agrees and we're all working towards this, this, uh, this product that we all made at the end. Um, I, th- I thought that was very true and Anthony I remember him also say him and I also talking and we said man 
we were looking through the glass into the live room and we were like we were like the collective ear training in that room right now is like off the (laughs) off the charts every single person in that room all three of them had like incredible ear training and they were all you know working musicians and they could all be in my seat just as easily and and drive this this project you know that made me feel very very thankful very grateful because that's how you know you're surrounded by a good team is that anyone can can take lead at any time and it would be great is there something in that feeling of you being in that room with Dean and him saying that and you experiencing how talented everybody is, is that what links up the two things that we talked about earlier where you will finally link up the theory and the knowledge with the ability to hit somebody emotionally in the gut with your music? Huh, that's interesting. I never thought of it that way, but that's there's, there's some truth to that for sure. What I'm realizing recently is, at least in this, in this uh, album cycle of Boy Pacific, again, moving out of my earnest thing towards a more quote-unquote disconnected thing. What I'm realizing is my job as a songwriter, if it is to write an earnest song, my job is to go there, go to the deep place, feel this thing, whatever it is, make it out alive, come back out, and then bring it to life. And yes, um, bringing it to life, like you mentioned, is bringing it to people like like Dean and, and, and these guys and the rest of the band and um, making it into something tangible. So yeah, you're totally right. Maybe that it, that is the connection. If you visualize touring in support of Boy Pacific... Which kinds of places, live music venues, or festivals do you see yourself in? You could really play so many different kinds of venues because of the uh, many different kinds of styles of songs in Boy Pacific. Like a song like Hold Me Again, you could play it at a festival, an outdoor festival. It would be like, it would be a bop. It would be so fun to play at an outdoor live festival. But then you could play a song like like Marigold at a, a coffee shop with a stripped down, stripped down setup. So, you know, whatever would be the most, <laughs> the most financially and, uh, and uh, financially viable. But um, I, I, I think it, it kind of opens it up in that sense. Um, I'd be very happy to play a lot of smaller venues, whether that be cafes, coffee shops, things like that. Um, and I, I feel like I have enough material to to do a nice sh- live show at bigger, medium to bigger venues as well, halls, um, bigger stages. When you sing someday I'm going to be someone in the song New Kid. What does that mean to you? I've always had high expectations of myself, which is unfair to me. <laughs> so when I, when I sing that line, when I wrote that line, I meant I'm going to prove not only to the people around me, but also to myself that uh, you said you were going to do this thing. And 
you did it or you tried to do it and these are the things that you learned. And um, I, I, I've heard that said before, that I'm going to prove to these people around me. I've heard that said before by other people. And I want to add a, an asterisk to that. By prove to other people around me, I don't mean that in a in a bad way that like, you people said I couldn't do it. I'm going to prove you wrong. I mean more of um, there are so many people in my life who have tried to steer me in certain directions saying you you can do this it's very possible so for the people who have said that and who have been really supportive i want to do them uh justice and say hey i I listened to what you had to say and i'm i'm doing it this is this is what i'm doing so it's more of that it's more of that i because i'll be really honest i i've never really had any real adversity for not pursuing pursuing music uh, from other people so for all the people who who have been very supportive i i someday i'm gonna be someone just to tell them that you were right you were right and and thank you for saying that what is the significance of the year 2015 in your track title 2015 is the year i graduated high school as a little young 18-year-old Francis. I started Capilano University as well. It was the year that I started getting into B.B. King and Stevie Ray Vaughan and Bill Evans and Wes Montgomery, all people that I listen to now weekly. Um, as part of my regular study of music. It was the year that I, I started reading more on and off since then, but um, it was the year that, that books became a bigger part of my life. It was the year that uh, I met my girlfriend at the time, and, and still is. Hi, Emma. <laughs> it, uh, it was just a, a big coming-of-age year, basically. And there were a lot of things that started then that are, are still a part of my, my young adult life. And that I, I imagine will still be part of my, my, uh, my life moving forward. I heard that you sang and played guitar in a four-piece band around 2012 that won a student music video contest. You wrote originals and you covered songs. I'm curious if this was your first band or what you learned while playing in your earliest groups. This is the first real band, yes, and it is forever etched into my heart as invaluable years. This is so good. As anyone in a, in a high school band would tell you as well, they're just the best years. Okay, the band was called ADOB, and it was with my, my friends, my best friends, their names were Eric, Mac, and Theron. Uh, and then later on, the addition of my other friend named Garrison. And we changed the name after that. But anyways, it was in 2012. We played a showcase at, it was the, the Tom Lee Music Hall. I think that's what it's called. It's like above where the old Tom Lee Music Store was on, on, uh, on Granville. 
and it was a showcase. It was a teen band showcase. Where else would I would I have gotten so much practice being on stage and playing with other people, but in in a band like that? And I'm I'm very thankful for that because it's hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of hours spent with those those people playing our instruments, getting ready for a show. You know how to sing into a mic plugging in your guitar finding finding the power source there are some things that um, you only learn through doing it multiple times so things i learned from playing in that band were real practical music things how to how to handle a stage how to be on stage how to take care of your gear pack it up to the gig how to organize logistics for rehearsals and music and and the gig itself tickets i remember hustling so hard in high school going around the halls trying to sell people tickets as if grade nines had twenty dollars to buy your ticket to your show you know uh we even knocked on the 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 teacher staff room and they we go around and be like, hey, Mr. Yada, yada, yada you want to buy a t-? <laughs> And to their credit, they were also great, uh, gracious. And they were like, maybe next time, Francis, maybe next time. But thank you, though. <laughs> it was great, though. It was great. What I'd tell anyone, I guess, if if you're in high school and you're in a band as well, I'd say, man, do it. It's so good. You, it's such invaluable time and invaluable relationships and friendships with the people you, you're exploring this with. Do it and see how, how far it goes. Because, you know, in, in rare cases, they go really far, like Green Day. In, in most other cases what you're left with is really 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 sweet memories an idea that you spent your high school years making music with your friends and hopefully skills that last you a lifetime musical skills that that set you up for for your life one of the other things I think we have in common is that we each had a regular duo partner with whom we made music in high school and after that. And having that experience was massive for me. So I'm wondering what you learned or developed most from that. Yes, um, I sang in a duo for the longest time, and still do, with my friend Taryn McMaster. She, if not for her, I don't think I'd be singing now <laughs> because she was the first person who ever really encouraged me. I was going to say forced, encouraged me to sing publicly. <laughs> there was this open mic we used to go to all the time. It happened weekly on Thursday nights at Gallagher's Cafe Coffee Shop in Newport Village in Port Moody. And there's a there's a an open mic there um, for years, and that's where we first started singing. I remember I was I was 15 when we had our first 
we we first wrote our names down. It was Frances and Taryn. And then she was like, you should sing. And the first song I ever sang at that open mic, me, with my own voice, into a microphone for people, was Your Body is a Wonderland. <laughs> Taken up uh, a step and a half to G, because it's just, sorry, a step to G, because it was just way too low. And there's a video of it somewhere on Facebook, I think. But yeah, that that was the first memory I have of ever singing singing publicly for real for people and and it was with her so she definitely had a a big part in getting me comfortable using my own voice on stage she also played a huge part in my understanding our understanding of of harmonies vocal harmonies and so long before I went to to CAP and really studied this for real, we were already playing around with, you know, breath marks in a score. We didn't have a score, but we would be like, hey, the breath should cut off on beat two. Um, the way we sing this vowel should be the same mouth shape so that it really lines up. And we were exploring all of that and and trying to to put it all together so she, she yeah she played a huge part in in me getting comfortable using my voice the first time that i became aware of your music was when you were making 30 second videos in the car that's right yeah yeah and that uh that was the latest the latest uh i guess rendition of our collaboration me and Taryn. We had this thing called Car Jams. Car Jams with Taryn, I think is what it's called on Instagram, where we'd pack ourselves into her car or my car. Again, before COVID, but we will we will get back to it. Um, we'd pack ourselves into, into a car and just sing a song for a minute. And it was funny because um, it would be so tight in there. The camera angle would not be ideal, but it would just be, it would be fantastic. We could do it anywhere. Go drive to a park. It's dark. Who cares? Play a song, sing a song. And then we'd um, sometimes play with other people as well who just sit in the back seat. So it's been in, in, in the talks for a while to do more things like that. Maybe you get a van, someone's van, and just pile, like, uh, what's that? What does Jimmy Fallon do with the roots? Uh, do you know what that's called? He, they just, it's like 20 of them, the roots and more with whoever the guest artist is. And they just play using ridiculous instruments, <laughs> but it's great. What about your history of collaboration with your brother? <laughs> you go deep, man. This is crazy. <laughs> yeah. My brother is three years older than me. Patrick is three years older than me, and we started playing guitar around the same time, and we'd always try to one-up each other on what we were learning. If he learned a My Chemical Romance song, I would try to learn it, and then he'd move on to another My Chemical Romance song, I'd try to learn it. I would learn a Good Charlotte song, he would learn the same Good Charlotte song, so we were uh, we were learning guitar, and it was nice to have someone else to 
you know, try to push you and we try to push each each other. So it's nice to have that motivation growing up. But collaboration, he played in high school as well in a band and we had some good times um, playing with each other. I played in their band for a little bit as well. And then he started getting into home recording. And actually a lot of the gear that I use now are, are still remnants from the gear that he bought in his early days of exploring home recording. Um, so he, he would always just ask me to, Hey, can you, can you play this? I just want to try something. Or we do a lot of home recording stuff, projects, um, just for fun, really. Um, when we were younger and, um, yeah, that's pre- those are pretty much the the collaborations. Like I, there were a lot of covers I remember on SoundCloud, Blink covers, I'm sure, me singing Billy Talent covers, I'm sure, and then he would mix them and and we'd put them up. <laughs> and it's not just on the music side; he contributes graphics, photos, other things too. Or is it vi- is it just video? There are definitely some videos. For Video, sure. okay, yeah. There were yes. Wow, I have not thought about those videos in a long time. Yes, I'm, there's a bunch of YouTube videos. <laughs> I don't know if they're still up. Maybe they are, because then, <laughs> then you would have found them. Uh, there's a bunch of YouTube videos. Those are the uh, kind of the final product of all this home recording stuff. I'd sing a song, like, there's one video. It was the song Amy by Green Day. Um, about Amy Winehouse and he'd record it I'd be singing I think I was I was 16 when I did that and then we just put it up and so yeah he'd record the audio he'd record the video I'm sure some graphics as well I'll have to check that too yeah that's it (laughs) he brought me back there you belong to other bands and projects beyond your own work and you also teach. So how have you come into your own way of managing the different jobs? I've only gotten good at managing the different jobs in the past year, I'd say, because everything up before that, they were all in one box. So being really transparent, it's only in the last year that I've started separating them into boxes. So when I'm teaching, I try to put on the teacher's box and understand that this job has its its specific needs. So I try to meet those. When I'm in feely feely singer-songwriter box, I understand that this box also has its needs. One box that I I um remember having the most trouble getting into or differentiating was the session player box. And I'll, I'll be really honest here. There, For anyone listening and who I've worked with in the past, I am 100% aware that some of the ways that I, I maybe acted or things that I've said, you know, it's, I was very hard to work with. And that has nothing to do with the people I was working with. Or the people that hired me, it had everything to do with my own self-absorbedness at the time and lack of awareness. 
So who was it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> actually, this is, if they're listening to to this, then I maybe they might say the same thing <laughs> as you said, which would further prove my point of it was way worse in my head. But um, the main people I, I played with for a little bit in the past two, three years were um, I played with Antoinette. Um, she's the singer in based based in Vancouver. They're all based in Vancouver because I live here. Antoinette now sings at in the in the house band of the Roxy, and just does a ton of gigs and a ton of of live um, sorry online content now. And she's a great singer. So I played with her a little bit. Played a couple gigs at Pacific Rim with her, uh, which are great. I played with. Um, Sola Music Soul, Adriana, a um, couple times at Water Street, and and other venues that I can't remember off the top of my head right now. And I played with with Sam Dowdell, uh, also another singer and songwriter. Those are the main main people I can think of right now that I played with, and um, we're all on good terms now. I just look, you know, in retrospect, I look back and I'm like, nah, I would have slapped you in the face, Francis, if I, <laughs> knowing what I know now and and looking outside in. But yeah, yeah, we're all on good terms now, and I I love them, and have so much respect for them. One of the I don't know if you were subscribed to Rhythm Changes yet, but one of the first things I did when I started writing in the summer was I wrote about this terrible gig that I called the worst gig of my life. Uh, and one of the people who was involved in it reached out to me and and we became friends where we hadn't been friends. And I never thought that would have happened. It was years that I was not friends with this person because of how I felt about that experience. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny how that works, hey? It's um how it looks in your head. Oftentimes, maybe doesn't it's not how it looks in other people's heads, but um, it, it's cool and and crazy how a bad event can, if if handled the right way, I think that's a key thing. If handled the right way, can bring people involved in that bad event together, and you make the the better of it. I also didn't realize that yeah, when you were talking about session player, there's also the live performer for higher element of that too, not just in studio. Yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So being hired by people to record as well as as play play live shows, which is I, I love. And, and, and there's no better time to look back at live shows than this year because I miss it. I'm, we all miss it now more than ever. What is a costly mistake that you've made as an independent artist that you would want other artists to avoid? My first album, I bought a lot of CDs without an understanding of the market at the time and the demand for CDs. <laughs> um, in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of money. Just a couple hundred dollars. But, um, you know, that's something I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd say was a, was a mistake. So what would have to be different in the landscape for you to go and do that again? What do you think is the key thing that in time it could be different and it could work? If, if there is a need 
for for CDs. Um, that's a really interesting conversation too because we can easily open it up to digital. Uh, you know the demand for music and how it's being consumed. So if I if and when I start working with with a publicist, that that would be the main difference. Since starting your career, what have you learned about how music is being consumed? Digital is key. Everything is accessible. There are more songs coming out per minute than there are minutes to listen to songs. That was a John Mayer quote. I, 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 didn't, uh, I didn't make that up. Social media is incredibly powerful. It's an incredibly powerful tool for people to find stuff. Especially for music, TikTok is huge. It's huge. That being said, because of the saturation in the market for music, everyone's getting basically a smaller, smaller, smaller slice of the pie. Um, there's just so much music coming out, which is fantastic because it's so accessible. But um, at the same time, as a consumer, and to be honest now, because it's so accessible, I find that the the divide between consumer and creator is becoming thinner and thinner and thinner. They're becoming the same person. So people consume music either to study it and see what tricks they can get from you or still to just to enjoy the, the music for what it is. Not to mention the, the short, shorter attention span overall. Um, and this comes hand in hand with 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 social media and if you don't get people in the first 30 seconds they're not gonna they're not gonna stay you know and that's the algorithm of of tiktok you'll see more of the videos that you complete and that you watch longer of and you'll see less of the videos that you skip past after the first two seconds which means you are at the mercy of people's attention span and the algorithm which is Great, because now it gives you... So I'm thinking now as a writer and a creator. Now it gives you a box to write in. It gives you parameters. It gives you it gives you um, a context to write in. And that kind of informs your art and what you create. It is unfortunate because that might be a catalyst for not creating things that you otherwise might have created if not for this this context. So to see some sort of commercial success, you have to follow these rules. And this is not a, a new thing. This has been going on for decades. But um, now, I, I, now more than ever, I feel like it's highly trend-based. To see big numbers, it's trend-based. At the same time, you can also see success with things that are not trend-based. You just have to define, redefine your definition of, of success. So me as, as a person with, 
with musical sensibilities like being accessible and I, I want things to hit people in the gut and just to relate to how can you relate to a market that's so trend based you know and um my game plan is basically i'm not a trendy person i don't think i have the personality to be on tiktok i love tiktok <laughs> i should i should say that i'm not bashing it at all and it's such a smart tool i'm just saying for me i i don't think i have the personality to be on tiktok and grab people's attention in three seconds because that's just not who I am. And so my plan is to keep being this creator, this person who creates pieces of work that are timeless, I think timeless, things that I wouldn't be ashamed of listening to when I'm 65. Um... The only embarrassing thing would be maybe it, it reminded me it was it was maybe too earnest because, oh, yeah, you definitely sound like a 23 in that song. But I think that's OK, because it's 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 just a timestamp of the years that you wrote it in. Now I'm I'm learning to redefine my my uh, definition of success, because it's not going to be trendy the outreach is going to be less you're asking a lot more of a market that is so used to now 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 but that's okay because it's not like i i can do it any other way so that's kind of my plan um moving forward and just coming to terms with that redefinition of of uh seeing success so your definition of success is wrapped up in what it means to you to make a record you talk about that a whole bunch yes mm-hmm mm-hmm um this is also from john Mayer. <laughs> i don't want to have to fight to make music I don't want to have the opportunity to make music be difficult. And in today's world, it's it's really not, you know, you could you could make music on GarageBand on your iPhone. It's it's that easy. And so because of the times we live in, I think that's already set up for me. I I don't think I'll ever have to worry about making music to make it happen. Um and with that comes making a record making the kind of music that I would like to make um, for the rest of my life. I think that's that's what it is. And and anything else after that would just be numbers and and business. And that's the next part that I the next chapter of my life that I'm studying more and and understanding more and how to marry that with my love for making these records. This has been phenomenal. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. This might be the last one I've got on the dock for you, but there's one name that I've heard is a major influence on you and you haven't brought it up yet. And I can't leave this interview 
without you bringing up this major influence of yours and talking about why you're influenced by this person. And I'm talking, of course, about Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> oh, what to say? Okay. So, I'll preface this with this. There are lots of people I look up to that are not musicians, but are artists in their own right. And I love getting into these people because they are practitioners of the same artistic values, just in a different medium. A cook or or a comedian, a comic, Dave Chappelle. Uh, so Gordon Ramsay, I'm a big fan of that guy because his story is so interesting. So it, it's almost a meme, the fact that we said his name, because I'm sure when people are listening to this, they're going to think, what are you, an idiot sandwich? Kitchen nightmares, they're going to think of Hell's Kitchen. They're going to think of all the TV shows. He's a TV star, a celebrity chef. Um, but if you look into his story, um, man, he's Michelin starred out and he made it work from the ground up. There's this great uh, documentary. I think it's about an hour and 40 minutes. It's on YouTube somewhere. I think it's called Boiling Point. And it was just following Gordon Ramsay in his early years of making his restaurant, opening his restaurant, Gordon Ramsay. Um, basically I, th I think the year was, it was in the nineties, but he left the other restaurant that he worked for aubergine. This would have been in, in England. And, um, I'm just giving you the rundown of what the documentary is. Go watch the documentary. <laughs> but anyways, he, this, this guy built his personality, his career, his, his stature from the ground up and, and, um, you know, earned his Michelin stars the way you earn Michelin stars. And um, I just love learning about him and people like him because all the artistic values there are the same. Artistic and entrepreneurial values there are the same. You have to, number one, just be a champion and work hard. You have to put so much overhead cost up at the beginning to make it work you have to put up so much cash um you have to create a brand you have to know your craft and know how to do it well and then you have to get the right team so he's i i love him and uh yeah i love his his story and uh his his uh experiences and what he has to say. And I love the fact that now he's just a family guy. Loved by the internet <laughs> as as a meme. <laughs> it's just, what more can you want, you know? Well, all those things you said about building stature from the ground up, in my eyes, you're absolutely doing that. And I really look forward to the day when you just retire and become a meme, Francis. So thanks so much for spending time with me today. Well, thanks, man. <laughs> If you like this podcast, subscribe to get more from wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you really like this sort of thing, visit rhythmchanges.ca 
and check out our music journalism based in Vancouver, BC. To support us directly, go to patreon.com slash rhythmchanges and check out our member and patron benefits. Direct support is essential to doing more of what we do. Thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on the Rhythm Changes podcast. Rhythm Changes is a Chernoff Music production.